Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Dan Parolik. Dan is the founding principal of Opticos Design, a Berkeley, California-based urban design and architecture firm. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Dan, you're Berkeley-based now, but you're originally from Nebraska. I'm curious how that shaped your interest in places. Yes, yeah, so it, it actually had a really um, strong influence. I grew up in a small town of about 20,000 people called Columbus, and um, it was a quintessential, vibrant, walkable small town. And so I can remember from a very young age um, walking to school, riding my bike to school, walking down to Main Street. And we, are, we, we as a family spent a lot of time on, in downtown on the Main Street because the department stores were still there, the restaurants were still there. And so I, I think that was really my introduction to what a walkable, sort of vibrant city was like. And, and over the course of the years, in particular after I moved away, um, sort of seeing the, the demise or the sort of emptying of the downtown, um, I think had a, had a very strong influence on what I'm doing today in my profession and sort of how to help cities like that sort of prosper and become vibrant again. So fill us in a little bit on what happened between leaving Columbus and ending up in Berkeley. Yeah, so... Um, I, first of all, I, for some odd reason, I, I had the desire to go to a big city. Um, so I actually spent my freshman year in college living in Chicago and I really loved being in the city. I loved riding transit. I loved just being out exploring the city. There's just something sort of about it that, that drew me. And then, um, uh, I, I transferred to Notre Dame, uh, to get an architecture degree. And one of the most influential parts of that education for me in, in undergraduate was living in Rome, uh, Italy for a year. Um, so they send the entire class um, sophomore year to live in Rome. So once again, like very urban experience, very different than Chicago, but I think um, very formative um, in my professional career. And, um, you know, I think that that experience and just continuing to travel a lot I feel is the best sort of ongoing professional education as, as an urban designer um, uh, that that you can have. So that it, and um, so I when I got my I got an undergraduate degree in architecture. I moved to New York for and practiced architecture there for a couple of two two to two and a half years, three years, and realized pretty early on that I wanted to get a graduate degree in urban design. Um, and ended up uh, moving across the country to the other coast um, and got a master's, master's of urban design degree from UC Berkeley and just was, was a tremendous experience. The faculty that, that was there in retrospect was, um, was really stunning. We had Ellen Jacobs of the Great Streets and the Boulevard books. Um, we had Donlin Linden, who uh, just a really influential architect and urbanist and had written some great books on housing. Um, Dan Solomon, um, who was a founding member of the Congress for New Urbanism. 
um, uh, Michael Southworth, who was um, a, a Kevin Lynch protege, um, and um, uh, you know other faculty members. And the Peter Bosselman was another one. And um, that experience in graduate school was basically my my undergraduate degree in architecture was very much focused on design, and then c going to the urban design program through Berkeley was very much focused on implementation. How are you going to do this plan? Like the, there was rarely an in-depth critique of the design. It was mostly about, okay, how are you going to make this happen? And so um, I was fortunate that my graduate thesis, um, I entered a professional design competition. It was called Housing the Next 10 Million. And um, actually ended up, I ended up winning that design competition. Um, and that uh, opened up the doors for me right out of graduate school um, in addition to being asked to teach um, studios um, by Donlin Linden, gave me the opportunity to sort of branch out on my own and, and start Opticos Design. Opticos is celebrating a big anniversary next year, mm -hmm. 20 years. What reflections can you share on building and sustaining a consulting firm? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty shocking how quickly 20 years goes by. Um, and we're, what's great about it is so we've, we've made a conscious decision to grow very thoughtfully. Uh, we're at about 20 people right now and we don't want to get any bigger. Uh, we feel at the point where you get bigger, you lose quality control and you kind of lose touch as principles uh, with the clients and with the communities and sort of being able to sort of deliver a good process and product. So um, I think the, you know, one of the things is I, I opened Opticos for a number of reasons, but one of them is I did still want to practice at the architecture and the building design scale, um, but I also wanted to be working on large urban design and planning projects. And when I was looking around for jobs after graduate school, firms were telling me, oh, you can go work in the urban design studio or the architecture studio, but you can't do both. I'm like, well, I'm going to do both. <laughs> and so I started Opticos, and um, we were fortunate in addition to the, the Housing the Next 10 Million competition. Um, we ended up winning another design competition shortly thereafter for, it's called Revision Isla Vista, which was a master plan for the community of Isla Vista, which is in Santa Barbara County, adjacent to UC Santa Barbara. And um, that was just a really a fun project that sort of enabled us to get our get our feet uh, on the ground and get established uh, sort of as as you know professional planners here in, in the state of California and, and we're you know we're I think one of the other things we're really proud of is about seven years ago uh, we became a founding B corporation um, and that's been really uh, an important part of of our our decision making and our our strategic planning where we've made a commitment to a triple bottom line of of fiscal, environmental, and social responsibility in all of our work. And so that's something that we take, um, sort of take to heart, and it really influences a lot of the decisions we make, not just what types of projects we work on, but also um, like simple things like um, being transparent, having transparency in your office uh, with your employees and building sort of a team that sort of helps influence decisions and also Simple things like we don't buy our office supplies from Home Depot, but we actually buy our office supplies from a local B corporation that donates a percentage of their profits at the end of the year to uh, like-minded uh, nonprofits. And so that's been a really great decision. So I think it's um, as we've balanced working with um, developer clients as well as public sector clients, I think in some ways that's been really helpful because we can communicate 
to both sides, which is not always the case. Um, uh, and we can bridge that communication often with a developer and the city staff or city decision makers in a way that a lot of other consultants can't. And um, so I, I think it's, I, I highly encourage uh, others who are thinking about this to, you know, take that leap. Um, it's not an easy thing. It's, uh, you know, you have a lot of flexibility in being your own business owner, but it's also, you can't turn it off um, or it's harder to turn it off. But uh, I think the, one of the biggest recommendations is just make sure you diversify your project types and um, make sure you don't rely on one client to sort of pay the bills or to, so you really have to like, we're right now working on about, you know, 15 plus or minus projects at a time, uh, varying in size. And it's when, when the recession hit, um, in 2008, um, our private sector clients pretty much disappeared for three or four years, but our public sector work uh, and the cities that were smart enough to say, hey, the development pressures have slowed down. This is the great time to do some planning and rewrite our zoning and, and not have as much pushback um, kept kept us going and going strong. And um, we, were, we were really happy about that um, we actually were fortunate that we didn't have to lay anybody off during the recession so it's it's pretty pretty telling to diversifying your your clientele and project type so you know it's it's funny i look back and um one of my undergraduate professors basically he told my thesis advisor told me he said go to go work for somebody for three years um and then open your own business and that's basically what i ended up doing in the end so so the just be corporation seems like one of those things that's maybe both easy and hard, or some aspects of it are easy and some of it are hard. Um, and I think there's an analogy there for the work we do, um, especially those of us who are motivated to evolve the practice mm -hmm. in, a, in a thoughtful, inclusive way. I'll call this the war stories section of the interview. I guess, do you have um, projects or clients or examples of things that either should have been easy and turned out to be hard or things that sounded hard and ended up being easy. Yeah, I think um, relating that specifically back to the B Corporation and sort of the more social, socially responsible aspect of our work, um, I mean, over the course of the last mm, probably close to 15 years, we had a really great working relationship with the, uh, the local government commission that's a nonprofit based in Sacramento and went after a lot of environmental justice grant projects, mostly for smaller rural communities up and down California's Central Valley. And uh, I'll just, I don't want to take full credit. My business partner, Stefan Pellegrini, actually led a lot of those projects. And there was just a really strong component of environmental justice for every single one of those that, you know, for us as a consultant, they're not the, they're not the type of project that's like we're getting the biggest profit off of, but they're definitely the type of project that are mo is most satisfying in many ways because we're, we're working and partnering with El the local government commission to provide planning and visioning to a community that wouldn't otherwise um, get that service. Um, and it's just, you know, some really basic things like um, why, why it's a bad idea for them to move their elementary school from the heart of their downtown into the middle of a cornfield adjacent, you know, or why they shouldn't be excited about Walmart landing on that freeway off-ramp when they currently have a vibrant downtown that has two grocery stores um, and simple things like, you know, what basic improvements could they make in the short term to 
increase walkability to schools to improve the the health of the local children. Um, just really simple things like that that have been. Um, I mean, just we've really enjoyed doing that work, and it is. I mean, in some ways, it's uh, it it just diff- brings different challenges uh, because part of it's like how do you get those people to the table? Like how do you how do you get them to come out, and what's the best way to engage them? Um, and so we. Uh, you know, just are very thoughtful about do we have to go to their churches and sort of just engage? Do we go to the schools? Um, are some of them actually going to come out to a charrette in, you know, studio if we actually set that up? Or how do we, you know, do we need uh, a picnic or a, a barbecue or something that's, that might be part of the local culture? So that, that's been really good. And um, I think our, those bring up different challenges, but well worth tackling those, those sort of issues that come up or the challenges. Um, you know, I think... Uh, in particular, our work in California right now is super challenging um, in in many different ways. There's just such a a, a strong need uh, statewide, and in particular in the Bay Area and the sort of the metro areas, to deal with our housing issues. And um, you know, when a bungalow in Berkeley is selling for a thousand dollars a square foot, and um, it costs four thousand dollars to rent a one bedroom apartment like hey we've we've got some challenges here that we need to tackle and um, uh, you know it's a, a politically like it's hard for for local decision makers to make those tough decisions but we're at a point where they they need to do that or the state's basically has stepped in with ADUs and enabled them statewide and there's SB 827 which was um, uh, proposed last year by Scott Weiner that would allow ho- a lot of housing by right within quarter mile and half a mile of all transit, um, going up to 45 or 55 feet, no density, no setbacks, no parking. And I kind of feel like at first I felt it was a little bit aggressive, but stepping back and looking at it, I say, well, yeah, I could I could see my neighborhood in Berkeley right now that's mostly small detached bungalows needing to become more of like a Brooklyn urban form because that's the sustainable the equitable uh thing to do so that's those are i mean there's some big challenges that we have in in all all of our projects in california of having those challenging conversations with community members with decision makers about hey um what are you going to do to step up and play your role in delivering uh housing choice and housing affordability especially in in walkable transit service serviced environments that leads me to something I've been observing, and I want to see if you agree, especially for those of us who are on the consulting side and and work with many different communities, it's very easy, I think, to get agreement on on the problem or the issue. Um, And the more difficult the issue is, for example, the the housing crisis, um, it's probably going to take a bold, different, scary solution, and that's where things fall apart. Either you can't get it agreement or consensus on which way forward, or because no one's done it before, um, people can't see it. Have you found that in your work? Oh, absolutely. And I think, number one, I feel that uh, a big part of our success is um, from the very start of our practice, and part of it's um, because my business partner, uh, Karen Parolik, uh, sort of 
comes at this from an information design standpoint. And so our, our work is highly graphic and highly communicative and effective communication with the use of design and graphics is a really important part of our practice. And I feel that um, this is kind of jumping the gun a little bit, but um, you know, our work right now falls into just three really broad categories. Um, uh, there's urban repair, which we say it's like a, a downtown plan, a corridor revitalization plan, a transit, you know, plan around a transit station. Um, the second second area is missing middle housing, um, and. Uh, I feel that it's both with city sort of public sector clients um, sort of helping remove barriers or create like we're working with the city of Greenville um, uh, right now to basically do a missing middle scan to tell them what barriers are in place and what they can do as a next step to remove those barriers. And the other half is with developers. The third pod is um, the form-based coding. And um, we, we, we sort of, uh, you know, the form-based code book is now 10 years old, hard to believe that, but um, uh, we, we wrote our first form-based code almost 20 years ago. And part of it was how can we create, not only just create better metrics within the, the zoning, but present it in a way that anybody can pick it up and understand it. And so um, I feel that missing middle and the reason the, in particular, the diagram seems to be popping up everywhere. The missing middle diagram we created is part of this, a big part of our job as, as urban designers and planners is effective communication. And um, like if you go into a community and say, hey, we're going to increase the density in your neighborhood, I can, you know, tell you how many neighborhoods are going to say, yeah, one. I can tell you how many neighborhoods are going to get really excited about that. Or, hey, we're thinking about changing your zoning to multifamily um, or, you know, the, these terms that come with a lot of baggage instead of like, hey, we need to be talking about housing choice. Uh, we need to talk about affordability or attainability and like let's just show some pictures of all these great missing middle types that exist in your community already that I'm, many of the community members have lived in at some point in their lives or maybe still do or maybe they have a grandparent or a, a child that you know grown uh, an adult child that's living in them so I think a big part of this is just um, is communication and I think we we sort of pride ourselves on being able to communicate and engage community members, decision makers effectively. And a lot of it is through design and graphic communication and, and clients. What we're finding is both on the private sector side and the public sector side is cities are really um, sort of, they come to us when they have a challenging problem that maybe some other folks have failed to resolve and they know that it's going to take a really robust engagement process and it's going to take some really creative communication um, and really sort of uh, these these feedback loops that we we talk about in the Charette process of design sort of communication through design and that's that's who's sort of targeting and coming to us to to work with us and so that's it's really exciting so for anyone who might not be familiar with missing middle housing I, I feel like you like it's popping up everywhere yeah. um, but some folks may not be familiar with that concept. Can you talk a little bit about it and how it plays out in communities of different size? Yeah, it's um, so missing middle housing is a range of housing types in between the scale of single family homes and the four or five, six plus story apartments or condo buildings that you see being built across the country. It's the duplex, it's the fourplex, it's the cottage court. Um, uh, the mansion apartment. It's the, these types that exist in every pre-1940s neighborhood, but we haven't been building 
I mean, it's been like 30, 40, 50 years. I was just doing research um, using the the American Housing Survey and um, is showing some pretty staggering statistics about how little missing middle we've actually built over the course of the last four or five decades. And um, there's a lot of reasons, um, and zoning is a big one. Um, and uh, we were on a walking tour of Berkeley and Oakland, missing middle housing walking tour. And I, you know, on the route that we went, I had my staff look at 15 different lots and buildings on them and three quarters of the existing missing middle in both the Oakland and Berkeley routes of that were, were non-conforming. They, they couldn't actually be built today. And so a big part of, its, of our zoning conversation is like and removing those barriers. But um, one of the aspects of this that I do often emphasize is missing, the missing middle relates to the scale, right? It's a, it's a middle scale. We often say if you, if you want to communicate this, they're house scale buildings that just happen to have multiple units inside of them. So like even if, because there's this perception that high density, sorry, I use the D word. I don't like to use the density word, but like um, in a plan, if your plan calls for higher medium medium to high densities that you envision a big building, well, these are house scale buildings that if they're outputting a density, it's actually pretty high. So they kind of, um, they're kind of challenging the system a little bit. Um, and it's, so, so the, 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 the middle piece relates to scale between that scale of the house and the, the big buildings. It's less intimidating to, to communities to think about. Um, the middle primarily also relates to that form and scale and the housing types, that duplex, fourplex, cottage court. And secondarily, the middle relates to, you can, in most places, a builder can deliver these range of missing middle housing types at a price point that's affordable by design. We call it affordability, but with a lower A, affordability by design. So I mean, the conversation often defaults immediately to affordable housing, but it's a great tool that for cities to have in their affordable housing toolkit, but there's also a tremendous pent-up demand for walkable urban living so that some of our developer clients are also delivering missing middle like cottage courts or pocket neighborhoods at the higher end of the market because there's demand for downsizing baby boomers that are selling their big rural or suburban house and wanting to move in closer to the action and they want small but of high quality. Um, one third of baby boomers want to live in that walkable urban, two thirds of millennials want to live in walkable urban. and some of that, right, there's walkable urban at a downtown scale, that big condo, mid-rise, high-rise, but then there's walkable living at the neighborhood scale, and that's what Missing Middle ultimately delivers, is that walkability, that housing choice at a neighborhood scale that a lot of people are looking for. Um, related to the Missing Middle is um, about, I think it's been three years ago now, um, we had a lot of information in our archives at Opticos related to the missing middle because it was inherent in our practice for close to 15, 17 years. And so we, instead of trying to find the time to write a book, we decided to launch the website. Um, it's at it's missingmiddlehousing.com and it has become a really good resource for people whether they just want to simply download the diagram and use it in their conversation or use some of the photos. Um, but we, we, we created it as a, as a resource because we were 
at a certain point after I had presented it for three or four years at various planning and um, sort of the Congress New Urbanism's annual Congress or the part, New Partners for Smart Growth or the APA National Conferences, people started contacting us very regularly about sort of where can I find information about this. And so we decided we needed to get that out there. And um, it's we're excited to see it being used so broadly. I just yesterday ran into a couple of planners from Australia and they've adopted this missing middle housing terminology and they're using it um, as in particular on the eastern coast um, of, of Australia. So it's exciting to see they've adapted the diagram and created their own variation of it. So it's just really exciting to see how it's, how it's spreading, being used and influencing um, sort of good planning and good communication internationally really. Now that I think about it, that's a perfect example of this idea I have about things that are easy and hard. You know, it's sort of like, okay, if once you explain it to someone, it's like, I get it, and yeah, and I'm not scared of that, but I'm sure it's easier said than done in many cases. Once you have to amend an ordinance yes. or be realistic about whether it pencils or not, you know, yeah. in the pro forma. Yeah, that's, it's, it's true. It's um, at the point where you're actually changing those zoning um, parameters um, or changing a zoning map and you're you're sort of moving the boundary of non-single uh, non family into an area maybe that was historically zoned for single family that's that becomes a, a pretty big challenge um, I think I'm feeling like there's been a shift in the last couple of years as most cities are acknowledging that they need to do something um, not even just California but across the country um, and they're, they are getting creative and getting building support for hey let's be thoughtful about um, how we can strategically find places to enable missing middle. Maybe it's not sort of carte blanche. Um, I think some cities are sort of taking that approach, and I think some cities need to kind of do a, a broader brushstroke, but others are being very methodical about, hey, let's look at some of these commercial zones, and should they actually do a better job of enabling more housing, um, maybe at the missing middle scale, um, along some of those corridors that we don't have enough commercial to support, or... Some cities look at industrial, former industrial land or land that had been set aside for future industrial and decide in their larger sort of comprehensive planning that maybe those make sense for um, more housing. But a lot of our work focuses on downtown adjacent neighborhoods and, um, uh, you know, those pre-1940s neighborhoods and just figuring out how to, how to enable what was happening there historically anyway. It's, it's never an easy conversation. Um, it's, it's, but I'd say like we're sort of back to your point on economic viability. We're working on a really interesting project right now in South Bend, Indiana, uh, for the near Northwest neighborhood that um, has almost 500 vacant lots. Over the course of the last 10 years, they've torn down, they've had to tear down a bunch of houses. It almost, I mean, in some ways, it feels like a, you know, a neighborhood in Detroit that sort of has... So they're privately owned, but they've gotten to the point where the city has to... Yep, demolish demolish the houses and the city actually owns large swaths of, of land based on sort of tax defaults and sort of taking over those properties, which is a good thing based on trying to create a strategy. Uh, and so the city's actually, if you build a single family house on one of those lots, it'll cost you about, I think they said something like $160,000 to build and you can only sell it for like 110. So there's like a 50 to $60,000 gap in what you can build something for and what you can sell for in terms of single family. So uh, the city's been thinking about missing middle for a while. And um, so we're, we're working with them and saying, hey, you can actually build a cottage court 
with five or six units, and they've done a market study that shows there's a demand for that. And, and by the way, that pencils out immediately. Um, in particular, as a rental project, it's showing that a lot of the, the fourplex, the duplex, and the, the cottage courts are penciling out. So there's a strategy of in that, in that project of how can we focus some of the early stakeholders sort of starting to create some synergy with infill of missing middle around existing institutions like churches and a great organization called the Near Northwest Neighborhood Association that's historically been the one finding grants and filling in sort of the neighborhood lot by lot with single family and they've gotten funding to build the first fourplex. So um, it's exciting a project like that to see how missing middle um, in a very in a struggling community that has the economics that are at the extreme far end from a place like the Bay Area or a Chicago or or any other metro area and how, how do you plant the seeds and enable private investment through planning and through um, they're going to in their process of, of updating their zoning to enable these missing middle housing types in this neighborhood as a pilot project I'd imagine once you get over that hurdle of letting the things be allowed um, what about the design side because not every developer or property owner has maybe the same commitment to to design. Is that something you're codifying with your community clients or going the design guidelines route or just sort of leaving leaving to each place to decide? Yeah, I think the one of the misunderstandings is that form-based coding regulates architecture and and you can sometimes if a city desires it, we will add design guidelines as a supplement to the form-based code. Um, but in a place like South Bend, um, you know, one of the most important things is just getting the the, the new zoning, the form-based standards, um, getting those numerics right. Um, uh, you know, if you have a 50-foot wide lot, you should be able to do a fourplex or a triplex or a side-by-side -side duplex um, and sort of making sure one of the, the really important ways to regulate for missing middle is by regulating maximum building width so that if somebody does own three lots sort of side by side that they can't, as you're enabling more units on a lot, they just can't build a you know 100 foot long apartment building, but rather they have to build three 45 foot wide fourplex buildings and they can usually achieve a similar yield or number of units, but it's in a scale of the neighborhood and that, that missing middle scale that they're trying to achieve. So the form, the form based, you know, whether it's like replacing it with the form-based code or just going in and changing the metric so that it has form in mind is really important. And, you know, the city of South Bend will likely um, have some sort of a, a clearly defined review process so that there is a quality standard, maybe not necessarily a style-based standard, but make sure that there is a, like, they probably will say no vinyl siding, for example, because even the near Northwest a neighborhood organization has proven they can use fiber cement siding and make the building sort of look more attractive longer term. So, but it's usually, we usually say it's kind of up to the city to decide if they want to go the route of having supplemental design guidelines, but it's really important to make sure that's pro that process is objective as possible. And there's like a clear path to the end of entitlement so that you're not adding risk to this developer that's coming in in a really risky environment and in, in particular in South Bend and um, that it makes it less likely that those, those, those builders will come to the table. In that regard, so I think an aspect of that that planners and others may not give consideration to is, for example, a political change. 
-hmm. So you worked really hard on, you know, XYZ, uh, form-based code, and you've got it all set. And if you leave some things to design guidelines and the new mayor loves purple and wants every building to be purple, right? So it's sort of, you hope to bake in things that will transcend leadership changes. I'm not sure everyone takes that long view because they're busy, you know, doing everything else. Yeah, it's that. That's really important because you don't want um, you don't want to leave that broad range of interpretation as the as the either the decision makers turn over. A lot of times, right, it's the city planning staff that's turning over. So the, the at the point at which the planning staff, the planning director, the project manager, the guy who our gal who's checking the plans at the desk, like when you start getting turnover from that staff as well after a plan is adopted, you need to make sure that, yeah, that there's consistent interpretation and uh, administration of that, that code and that the policies within a plan that you might do. And so that is really important. So you said form-based coding is about 20 years old as well as a practice? It's actually quite a bit older than that. It's in our, in Opticos's practice, it's 20 years old. Um, the the first modern form-based code was really done in Seaside, Florida, which was now 35, 30, well, a little over 30 years ago. Um, so um, they, they introduced a very graphic-based, building-type-based code for Seaside in it. Um, you know, for the first number of years, it was generally applied to kind of new neighborhoods and greenfield conditions. But I would say in the early to mid-90s, um, a lot of the early form-based code practitioners realized that, hey, this could be a great tool to replace the zoning in existing urban places, whether it be a downtown or an, uh, an urban, like a streetcar neighborhood. And so um, it was adapted very effectively. And I think there's still a misperception from a lot of planners, decision makers um, about you know, form-based coding only being for greenfield uh, conditions, but um, it has proven to be a very effective tool for replacing um, zoning in, in existing urban areas. And I think even more so in those areas because a lot of those places were built prior to zoning actually being in place. And so the zoning, you know, uh, Euclidean zoning was created in, in a lot of ways to create suburban environments where everything was separated. So when they tried to apply that system to the urban areas, there was a, there was a big mismatch between the tool and the end result. And so I feel like, you know, the form, form-based form coding sort of reintroduced a very thoughtful study of what those urban patterns are and adjusting the regulations to reinforce the complexities of mix of uses, mix of forms that make up those urban places. And what I would say is we realized very early on, like if you had asked me or told me that I was going to be rewriting zoning codes, you know, when I was going through architecture school, I would have laughed at you. Um, you know, not the most glamorous or, you know, what seemed not the, the most interesting topic of conversation necessarily, but we realized early on in Opticos's uh, lifespan that um, both with our, our developer clients and our city clients that the zoning was in the way of them achieving the vision that was the best vision for those places, even just urban revitalization, zoning was in the way. With our developer clients, right, they were trying to do compact, mixed-use, walkable projects at the, 
you know, late 90s, early 2000s. And, and I said, oh, by the way, you have to go through a change in zoning or we're just not going to allow that. So, so like, that's why we, we, we stepped into that realm. And um, uh, I was fortunate enough that um, when I was going through graduate school, uh, at UC Berkeley, Dan Solomon actually had us write a form-based code as one of our graduate studio projects. And then the architecture studio took our code and actually designed a civic center for San Jose. So that, that was my introduction. And um, uh, I remember as part of my thesis, graduate thesis, studying some of the early form-based codes, like spending hours and hours of like studying these codes and ended up as part of my graduate thesis writing a a form-based code as well. So it was, um, I feel that it's definitely a core part of our practice right now. Um, I would say the majority of our coding um, includes some sort of a visioning or urban design component, um, whether it be through a charrette process or otherwise, and then it's implemented with the, that that vision that, that is built around community support um, is implemented with the form-based code. Um, some, of, some of our work, though, with form-based coding is is at the citywide scale. Um, City of Cincinnati, it's been adopted now, gosh, at least six or seven years ago. Um, and sort of was it was a citywide calibration of a form-based code that was applied to four pilot neighborhoods and it has shown really pretty amazing results in those neighborhoods. Um, we've done countywide form-based codes. Um, Beaufort County, South Carolina is a great example of that um, where it helped the county decide not only where they wanted growth, which we sort of worked with them on their changing their land use plan to help protect and preserve their rural, the rural context and the, the rural environment, and also what that environment, new built environment should look like in terms of compact, walkable neighborhoods. And, and so Beaufort County, South Carolina has form-based coding. Um, Kauai County has form-based coding. Mesa, Arizona, and their downtown has form-based coding that's unleashed uh, a tremendous amount of development in the downtown as the light rail was extended. And so it's it's happened, and that's just our work. I mean, our, there's a lot of our colleagues that are doing this all over the country, and it's exciting to see um, sort of the tool of form-based coding spread um, and be successful. And um, really almost any RFP you see out today that's related to zoning they'll at least, if they're not directly asking for form-based coding, they're like, say, well, we'll we're open to exploring the idea of form-based coding um, because it is fairly, I see it as a best practice right now um, in zoning. So that's exciting to see. So it's certainly been exciting to watch the evolution of things like form-based coding and people's focus on an interest in missing middle housing. A lot of the ideas coming out of your shop or ideas you've helped to spread why are there still barriers to creating truly walkable communities? And which barriers, if any, have you been able to help communities overcome? That's a great question. I would have hoped, you know, 20 years ago when I started this practice, that at this point we would have standardized uh, more urban, whether it be street standards or just zoning districts or, or planning practices to enable more walkable urban places. It's it's still it's a little bit frustrating at this point to be battling the same battles like on a city by city basis. Um, that being said, I think there has been progress made. Um, you know, to be to be quite honest, it's like um, I think great places start with good street design, and the fact that majority of cities still have very suburban 
street standards and and it's it's a non-starting point if you don't have good streets you can't have a good walkable urban environment um so so that that's one of the challenges and it's not directly a planner's sort of role or focus but it's an important part of like what we push for on every single project that we're working on and um i think there is a long way to go uh with zoning still I think that you know when I uh, when I co-authored the form-based code book now almost ten years ago, I kind of had hoped that in writing that book that it would have it would have sort of educated and spawned a bunch of really fantastic uh, form-based code writers. But the reality is, um, there's just not a lot of consultants out there doing really high quality zoning and form-based coding work yet. Um, They're a special breed, I think. It, yeah, so I, I kind of feel like. Um, I was super excited to be asked to join the APA's task force on design and policy. And because it, it was a conversation about what level and types of design skills do planners need. And I feel that, um, especially since the demand is really shifting all across the country, whether you're in rural rural town or a big city of of them trying to get their hands around this demand for urbanism, walkable living. And I think planners need a real foundation in some really basic design understanding of the block, uh, the street, the neighborhood, um, even building types. Um, and it's not that they need to be sort of architects or design at that scale, but I think there's there's just the need for a, a foundation of physical design within planning. and. Um, UC Berkeley uh, has a history of being fairly strong at that, mostly due to Ellen Jacobs' sort of push to make sure that every planner takes a, a, a design studio at least one semester, I think it was. It might have been two. Um, but he's since retired, and now there's a push to get rid of the physical design um, component of the graduate degree at UC Berkeley at the time where it's I feel it's most important. And so um, I think that the other challenge for planners, urban designers is like this whole need for multidisciplinary uh, collaboration on every single project. And it only gets right more and more complex. And so, you know, it's, it's, there's sustainability components, there's the equity components, there's resiliency. Um, So it's not getting any easier. And it's, it's, I think planners and um, have been really good about sort of reaching out and creating those collaborations. Um, but I think it's, it's going to be an ongoing challenge of, especially with limited resources, of, of tackling the, the challenges in an effective way with limited resources, and, and, but using that multidisciplinary approach. The one thing I would add is you were alluding to this. We're not trying to turn planners into designers. That's not the expectation, but to be able to critique it, review it, shape it, I think that is you know, within their core competency and something that's missing right now. Yeah. And I, you know, I had the fortune to, um, running into Rick Bernhardt, um, uh, early on in my career through the form-based code Institute. And he was the former planning director for Nashville and Davidson County for quite a few years. And he was a sort of early, um, new urbanist, uh, and I had did I think he was the planning director in Florida and did some really early form-based coding. But Rick um, did a really great job in Nashville of introducing an urban design studio, and and they built the capacity internally to 
do neighborhood plans, do other special area plans, write their own form-based codes, and then they brought in outside help when they needed it. Like with their downtown uh, zoning, they brought us in to do strategic advising and peer review, you know, because they knew it was a little bit outside of their comfort zone. And and sort of Rick, I know he worked on the, with the group in APA that sort of was writing the AICP exam questions, and you could tell, <laughs> you know, exactly the questions that he wrote um, because they had a more of a physical design direction. So I think through this task force, I was excited. You know, I, I think the bring resurrecting the conversation about uh, the, the importance of of design as a skill set planners and one of many skill sets that that they need and just what what trying to define what that is and how i think bringing it back into the education of planners and um how how can we embed this physical design into a planning degree well i really appreciate your comments and your insights especially reviewing what's happened in in this world over the last two decades if people want to learn more where should they go Yes, yeah, so um, uh, Opticos's website's a, a great start. It's opticosdesign.com. That's O-P-T-I-C-O-S design.com. If you want to sign up for a newsletter, blog posts, we you know usually do a blog post about one quarterly. That's a lot of times will be on form-based coding or missing middle or some other sort of urban revitalization topic. Um, missingmiddlehousing.com was the website I mentioned earlier focused solely on missing middle. Once again, a great resource for how to communicate, how to adapt your zoning for missing middle housing. Um, my Twitter feed is at Opticos Design. Um, so feel free to engage me in your conversations that you're having about uh, form-based coding or missing middle or any other interesting sort of urban revitalization. And what I would say is if, you know, if you're out and about, if you're having these missing middle conversations, uh, there's a hashtag missing middle housing uh, that, um, or sometimes some people just use hashtag missing middle and there's a good compilation of of sort of conversation and even photographs with that hashtag that I just encourage people to go out and take a look at. Well, Dan, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.